David mustered the men who were with him and appointed over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. David sent out his troops, a third under the command of Joab, a third under Joab's brother Abishai, son of Zeruiah, and a third under Ittai the Gittite. The king told the troops, I myself will surely march out with you. But the men said, you must not go out. If we are forced to flee, they won't care about us. Even if half of us die, they won't care, but you are worth 10,000 of us. It will be better now for you to give us support from the city. The king answered, I will do whatever seems best to you. So the king stood beside the gate while all his men marched out in units of hundreds and thousands. The king commanded Joab, Abishai, and Ittai, be gentle with the young man Absalom for my sake. And all the troops heard the king giving orders concerning Absalom to each of the commanders. David's army marched out of the city to fight Israel, and the battle took place in the forest of Ephraim. There Israel's troops were routed by David's men, and the casualties that day were great, 20,000 men. The battle spread out over the whole countryside, and the forest swallowed up more men that day than the sword. Now Absalom happened to meet David's men. He was riding his mule, and as the mule went under the thick branches of a large oak, Absalom's hair got caught in the tree. He was left hanging in midair, while the mule he, he was riding kept on going. When one of the men saw what had happened, he told Joab, I've just seen Absalom hanging in an oak tree. Joab said to the man who had told him this, What? You saw him? Why didn't you strike him to the ground right there? Then I would have had to give you ten shekels of silver and a warrior's belt. But the man replied, Even if a thousand shekels were weighed out into my hands, I would not lay a hand on the king's son. In our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, protect the young man Absalom for my sake. And if I had put my life in jeopardy and nothing is hidden from the king, you would have kept your distance from me. Joab said, I am not going to wait like this for you. So he took three javelins in his hand and plunged them into Absalom's heart while Absalom was still alive in the oak tree. And 10 of Joab's armor bearers surrounded Absalom struck him and killed him. Then Joab sounded the trumpet and the troops stopped pursuing Israel, for Joab halted them. They took Absalom, threw him into a big pit in the forest and piled up a large heap of rocks over him. Meanwhile, all the Israelites fled to their homes. During his lifetime, Absalom had taken a pillar and erected it in the king's valley as a monument to himself. For he thought, I have no son to carry on the memory of my name. He named the pillar after himself, and it is called Absalom's Monument to this day. Now, Ahimaaz, son of Zadok, said, Let me run and take the news to the king that the Lord has vindicated him by delivering him from the hand of his enemies. You are not the one to take the news today, Joab told him. You may take the news another time, but you must not do so today because the king's son is dead. Then Joab said to a Cushite, Go, tell the king what you've seen. The Cushite bowed down before Joab and ran off. Ahimaaz, son of Zadok, again said to Joab, Come what may, please let me run behind the Cushite. But Joab replied, My son, why do you want to go? You don't have any news that will bring you a reward. He said, Come what may, I want to run. So Joab said, Run. Then Ahimaaz ran by way of the plain and outran the Cushite. 
While David was sitting between the inner and outer gates, the watchman went up to the roof of the gateway by the wall. As he looked out, he saw a man running alone. The watchman called out to the king and reported it. The king said, if he's alone, he must have good news. And the runner came closer and closer. Then the watchman saw another runner and he called out to the gatekeeper, look, another man running alone. The king said, he must be bringing good news too. The watchman said, it seems to me that the first one runs like Ahimaaz, son of Zadok. He's a good man, the king said. He comes with good news. Then Ahimaaz called out to the king, all is well. He bowed down before the king with his face to the ground and said, praise be to the Lord your God. He has delivered up those who lifted their hands against my lord, the king. And the king asked, is the young man Absalom safe? And Ahimaaz answered, I saw great confusion just as Joab was about to send the king's servant and me, your servant, but I don't know what it was. The king said, stand aside and wait here. So he stepped aside and stood there. Then the Cushite arrived and said, my lord, the king, hear the good news. The Lord has vindicated you today by delivering you from the hand of all those who rose up against you. And the king asked the Cushite, is the young man Absalom safe? The Cushite replied, may the enemies of my lord, the king, and all who rise up to harm you be like that young man. The king was shaken. He went up to the room over the gateway and wept. As he went, he said, oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, if only I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Job was told, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. And for the whole army, the victory that day was turned into mourning, because on that day the troops heard it said, the king is grieving for his son. The men stole into the city that day as men steal in who are ashamed when they flee from battle. The king covered his face and cried aloud, oh my son Absalom, oh Absalom, my son, my son. Then Job went into the house to the king and said, today you have humiliated all your men who have just saved your life and the lives of your sons and daughters and the lives of your wives and concubines. You love those who hate you and hate those who love you. You have made it clear today that the commanders and their men mean nothing to you. I see that you would be pleased if Absalom were alive today and all of us were dead. Now go out and encourage your men. I swear by the Lord that if you don't go out, not a man will be left with you by nightfall. This will be worse for you than all the calamities that have come on you from your youth till now. So the king got up and took his seat in the gateway. When the men were told, the king is sitting in the gateway, they all came before him. Meanwhile, the Israelites had fled to their homes. J. Calvin Coolidge was the 30th president of the United States. He served as president from 1923 to 29. He was famous for being a man of very few words. He was nicknamed Silent Cal. On one occasion, Silent Cal came home from church and his wife asked him, what was the sermon about? And he replied with a single word, sin. But his wife persisted, well, what did the preacher say about it? And after a moment's thought, Coolidge replied, he said he was against it. <laughs> now, from a, the Bible's point of view, that sermon was correct. But it isn't the last word on the subject of sin, obviously. The Bible has a great deal to say about sin. Naturally, as according to the Bible's understanding, sin is the ultimate cause of everything that's wrong with our world. 
And it's the immediate cause of much that is wrong in our lives. Sin must be dealt with. Now, we're nearing the end of a sermon series in the life of David. David is such a major figure in the Bible, you can't make sense of the Bible without understanding him. Jesus is called Son of David again and again. The New Testament draws attention to the fact that he's a son in David's line. God called David. God blessed David. He made extraordinary promises to David. He established David's kingdom. David is a picture of Jesus Christ. And God called David a man after my own heart. And so we need to understand and grasp the life of David as an example to us, a lesson to us, and a warning to us. Because we've seen that David is very far from perfect. Now, two weeks ago, we witnessed David's terrible fall. He allowed his sexual desire for beautiful Bathsheba to get out of control and lead him step by step to a very dark place. At the start of chapter 11, David was at the peak of his career, but within 14 verses he had abused his position of power, committed adultery, plotted a cover-up, and was planning to murder Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, in cold blood, which he did. How on earth did he get there? And we thought about the sequence of things that happened. Firstly, there were four things that emerged in that narrative. Firstly, David was neglecting his duty. And we thought about how we can be tempted to do that, to neglect our duty, which leads us to be open to other things. We thought about how he indulged his eyes and was discontented with what God had given him and wanted that forbidden fruit. Then he broke his vows and fourthly, finally, hid his sin. But God is so gracious to those who don't deserve it. And last week, Edem taught about how God sent Nathan a prophet, a man with a message, to bring David to his senses. And David repented from the heart. Psalm 51 is eloquent testimony to the depth of his repentance. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions, my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. He laid it all out there and God forgave him. He didn't deserve it. He should have been punished, but God showed him amazing grace. How sweet the sound. So now everything should be okay, shouldn't it? Surely we can just move on now. Everything's fine. Why are we talking about sin again this morning? Actually, we can't move on yet, friends. Because in David's life, sin had disastrous consequences and effects that continued even after he had repented. Notice that? This is, this is years later. Chapters 12 to 17 unfold a reality of life that we need to see clearly. And here it is. Even when someone sincerely repents, and even when God graciously forgives them, sin has consequences. Sin corrupts, and it carries with it consequences. Now, I want us to look at this story under three headings. And what I need to do, because we're really covering quite a lot of material, is to look at it... um, under these three headings and go through the story three times. So firstly, I'm thinking about the corruption of sin. Secondly, the consequence of justice. And thirdly, the cry of love. Corruption, consequence, and cry. 
the corruption of sin. If you were to turn back to chapter 12 after uh, Nathan has confronted David and David has, has, has realized his, the error of his ways and uh, marvelously turned back to God, then a, a whole story unfolds where consequences start to, to play out. The baby that was conceived by Bathsheba died, but yet God was gracious again and another baby was born whose name was Solomon. But in chapter 13, something dark begins to happen in David's family. And it's to do with one of his sons, Amnon, and a sister, Tamar. She's probably a half-sister, not a full sister, but she is related. And Amnon becomes absolutely obsessed with this young woman. She is beautiful, and she's a virgin. And it says in chapter 13, it seemed impossible for him to do anything to her. He's obsessed. And so he takes advice from a very cunning man called Jonadab. And this guy gives him advice about how he can trick Tamar into a compromising situation where they are alone and she is vulnerable. And so he does. And then he grabs her and says, come to bed with me. And she says, no, don't force me. Such a thing should not be done. Please don't do this. But verse 14, he refused to listen to her. And since he was stronger, he raped her. And then Amnon hated her with intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up and get out. And he sends her away, a broken woman. Tamar never recovered. She put ashes on her head, tore the robe she was wearing. She went away weeping aloud. Now Tamar's brother is a guy called Absalom. And chapter 13 says, Absalom never said a word to Amnon either good or bad, but he hated him because he had disgraced his sister. And what he did was wait two full years. They say that revenge is a dish best eaten cold. And what Absalom does is, in cold-hearted revenge, plots to take down Amnon. He invites him to a feast. He gets him drunk, and he gets his men to murder him there, and he is slain. And then Absalom runs for his life, gets out of town, goes and lives under the rule of another king, and King David is heartbroken and mourns for many days. But after three years, David wanted some kind of reconciliation, and he, he, he asked this, this wayward son to come back. And so there's, there's, there's intrigue and there's interplay in chapters 14, uh, chapter 14, and Absalom does come back, and he lives in Jerusalem for a couple of years, but David won't see him. So he's there, but the relationship isn't restored. It's this uneasy tension. And during that time, Absalom conspires to take his father's throne. And to do that, he will need to kill him. So in chapter 15, Absalom is a very cunning man. And he comes and stands at the gate. And the, gates of the city gate was the place of judgment, the place of commercial and legal decision-making. And Absalom goes to the gate. And when people are coming in and out, he basically favors them. And he gives them... Um, uh, benefits and treatment and listens to them and he wins them over subtly so that by the time we get to chapter 15 verse 6 he behaves in this way of those who are coming to the king to ask for justice and so he steals the hearts of the people see Absalom very subtly through the back door is building relationship through his charisma and his connections in order that he can plot the overthrow of his father and in chapter 15 and 16 we have a, an unbelievable turn of affairs where David is forced to flee his palace leave behind his, his possessions and his concubines they were uh, women who had 
a relationship with the king but weren't full wives. And they run, he and his few followers run for their lives and try and escape uh, the death sentence that Absalom has placed upon them. So we pick up our story here in chapter 18 with effectively a civil war about to break out and a battle and David has gathered troops around him and Absalom's got most of the army with him and it's, it's poised for this huge catastrophic conflict. Now, what's going on here? <laughs> Pause for breath. We're seeing the effects of David's sin unraveling in his own family and his kingdom for years. Because his sons are just like him. Amnon's obsessive desire for Tamar. Remind you of anyone? He let passion rule him. Just like David. Just like dad. Chapter 13. Absalom's calculated violence to destroy Amnon and remove him from the picture. Just like David had done. Just like dad. They all knew about it. But then it goes further. You see, sin tends to spiral out of control because David's attempts to bring Absalom back have actually had the opposite effect. Absalom has hardened his heart. He takes things further and further, and now he wants to rule, and he plots patricide, the murder of his father. You see, sin corrupts. It has a corrupting power. It's not static. It has a dynamic power, dark power. So David is forced to flee for his life, his kingdom slipping from his fingers. Absalom has won the hearts of the people. And as the aging king makes a run for the river and with his loyal subjects, a man called Shimei came out and cursed him. He walks along the hillside opposite David, hurling stones at him and showering him with dirt and cursing him. And he shouts out, get out, get out, you murderer, you scoundrel. The Lord has repaid you for all the blood you shed in the household of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. The Lord has given the kingdom into the hands of your son, Absalom. You have come to ruin because you're a murderer. I mean, they've fallen so far. And, but David didn't retaliate. He just meekly replies, leave him alone. Let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look upon my misery and restore to me his covenant blessing instead of his curse today. Now that is a truly dreadful story, isn't it? What sin has done in David's life, my goodness, how it has affected and spoiled everything. It seems to touch everything and create ruin and trauma. Why is it like this? Why couldn't it, everything just go back to being fine again? Now, I think the answer is that God has made the world with morality woven into it. We live in a moral universe. It has a moral fabric. Everybody knows this, you know. Every human being has a moral code. They do vary, but they all have a moral code and a deep sense of right and wrong. No matter who you are today, you may be a hardened atheist here today, but you have a deep Moral code. It's like a beautiful piece of cloth, skillfully woven. But if you tear it, if you pull it, if you rend it, if you, if you warp it in the wrong direction, if you distort the cloth over time, the fabric gets altered and damaged and it, it's out of shape. So our moral actions have ongoing consequences in our lives and the lives of others. Sin inevitably corrupts. 
Now, this is very sobering for us. It should be. But it's particularly sobering for those of you who are parents. You know, your kids are more likely to be shaped by the sins of your family than by anything else. Now, we see this in Exodus chapter 34. This passage is a stunning revelation of who God is. God shares himself. He shares his, his heart, his intimate character with, with Moses in a unique episode. And God speaks his personal name twice. But watch out for what God says here at the end of verse 7. I'll read it. You don't have to look it up. Exodus 34. God passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Don't you like that so far? Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. What is that about? Of course, we Western individualists can't handle that text. God says he punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Why does it say that? Because the consequences of sin have an ongoing effect in the lives of our children. Sin corrupts. And as you get older, if you are becoming more self-aware, and I hope you are, you're going to see things working out in your character and in your life that you don't like about yourself. You don't want those things in your life. Uh, I heard a great speaker yesterday morning called Steve Timmis talking. He's a man in his early 60s, and he said to a friend, I'm just tired of myself. <laughs> I'm just tired of myself. I realize these things about my life and character I don't like, I don't want. And you start to realize, my goodness, I'm more like my parents than I want to be. These, these sinful strategies that I have for dealing with life, where did I get them from? This way I have of responding to, to, to frustration or suffering or hardship or idiots these kind of habits I have, these character flaws. Now, look, this is not to say that you are doomed, all right? It's not to say that you are destined to repeat the sins of your parents. Thank God. Real change is possible. Christians have the power of the Holy Spirit at work in them. Amen? We have the Word of God himself given to us in our own language. We have the church, the communion of the saints, the holy ones, to help us. We are not doomed and destined to repeat the sins of our parents, which you need to hear if you were abused. You need to know that. You're not on a tape that's just going to replay. But we must never underestimate the serious, corrupting power of sin in our lives. As David found out, it has consequences that go on and on and on, and it can damage our children. Sin corrupts. Secondly, it leads to consequences. The consequences of justice. Now, chapter 18, which Rupert and I just read, we have this whole story about this battle in the forest and what David says to the men and the men say to him. And it's really interesting because actually you have this, this epic battle, but a lot of attention is actually focused on a few conversations between a few people. So the writer is clearly drawing our attention to what is said in those con conversations. In verses 1 to 5, David has by now gathered an army, and he's organized them into three regiments with experienced commanders. And the men tell him, you stay in the city. You've got to stay safe. We're here for you. 
we'll go out and fight, but you stay there. You're worth 10,000 of us. You just support us from back there. And David listens to them, takes their advice. And in verses 6 to 8, they fight Israel, which is referring to the rest of the country who are now with Absalom, who's stolen their hearts. But David's smaller force is able to defeat them with a good strategy. They go and fight them in the forest. And it says the forest ate the troops or it devoured them. In other words, there were fatal accidents that were caused by fighting in the treacherous terrain and the wild undergrowth of the forest. And these guys who were skilled in guerrilla warfare, they use it to their advantage. But also, there's a hint that God is with them because God is the one who controls the forces of nature and can use them to serve his purposes. And then in verse 9, it says that Absalom happened to meet David's men. And you know in the Bible, with a, with a vision of a sovereign God, nothing ever really happens by chance. God is handing Absalom over to these men. Now he's riding a mule, which doesn't sound that great to us, but a mule was actually a royal mode of transport. So he's, he's riding a, a royal, it's a royal claim for a rebel prince. And he's riding along, but then his hair gets caught in a large oak tree. Now, this hair was his pride and joy. Ladies, you would have been green with envy about Absalom's hair. Listen to what it says in chapter 14. In all Israel, there was not a man so highly praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the top of his head to the sole of his foot, there was no blemish, blemish in him. I know what he feels like. <laughs> Whenever he cut the hair of his head, and he used to cut it once a year because it got too heavy for it, he would weigh it, and its weight was 200 shekels by the royal standard. <laughs> All this detail about Absalom's hair. This guy can grow two kilos of glossy mane a year. Should have been making it into wigs. But now his beautiful hair is his undoing. He's, he's trotting along on his royal mule. And I don't know if he turned to look or what happened, but somehow he gets caught in the branches of this big oak tree. And he's hanging there between heaven and earth. And the mule runs off, symbolically taking his royal aspirations with it. Now, the man who saw it was actually too scared to do anything. He feared the consequences of killing the king's son. So he thinks, I'll go and tell someone else. <laughs> he goes and tells Joab. Now, Joab is an old warlord. And he knows that the kingdom will not be secure again and under David as long as that prince lives. So he rides up and he plunges three javelins into Absalom's chest. And then ten of his armor bearers step in and they hack Absalom to death. Now this is a very subtle, quite clever maneuver because it means that no single person can be blamed for killing Absalom. There were 11 guys involved and they take the body. They throw it into a big pit in the forest and they cover it with rocks. It's like a symbolic stoning and it's a shameful burial. He's outside of the city. He's not buried with his ancestors. He's, he's buried like one that's, that's under a curse. Now, according to the standards of the ancient world, justice has been served. Absalom was a murderer. He killed his brother in cold blood. He was a traitor. He used his charisma and connections to turn the people against the king. He was planning to kill his dad. He'd slept with his father's concubines in public. 
He caused the battle that killed 20,000 men, it says in verse 7. So all of this, remember, is the consequence of sin. The just consequences. Now, what is sin? We use this word a lot. What is it? In the 4th century, St. Augustine, the North African bishop, defined sin as an utterance, a deed, or a desire that's contrary to the eternal law. An utterance, a deed, or a desire that's contrary to God's law. Anything against God's law is sin. More recently, Dr. Tim Keller has defined sin as a distortion and a dislocation of the heart from its true center in God. Distortion and dislocation of our hearts from its true center in God. We, we make uh, other things our Lord and Savior. We want to save ourselves and we reject God's gracious rule over our lives. We write our own word. Sin corrupts. And what we're seeing here is the, some of the consequences. In the moral universe that God has created, there will be justice. There will be justice, which on one level actually is very a, a good news for those who have suffered under the hands of abusers or those who are suffering under the, the, the hands or the rule of wicked regimes, governments and rulers, those who are suffering persecution, those who see no justice in their lifetime. The Bible says God will bring justice to all. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Now, that might sound rather harsh, but maybe it only sounds harsh to those of us who've lived in comfort in the West all our lives. If your village had been burned down and all your property taken and your sisters raped, you would be glad that God will repay. The Bible says you don't take vengeance because God will. So Christians are free to forgive knowing that God is the one who brings justice. Absalom got what he deserved. He got what he deserved. But that's not the whole story here. Because there's another strand that runs through this story that we mustn't overlook. It is the cry of love. You see, David's feelings for Absalom weren't simply governed by the desire for justice. He was more deeply motivated by love. In spite of everything, David loved Absalom intensely. And this love actually creates a tension all through this story. Just look again at verse 5. The troops are going out, okay? They're going out for David. And what does David say to them? The king stood beside the gate. While all his men marched out in units of hundreds and of thousands, the king commanded Joab, Abishai, and Ittai, be gentle with the young man Absalom for my sake. Be gentle with him? What are they supposed to do? They're fighting for their lives. You see, David's love here, his love for Absalom, actually undermines the ability of the troops to do their job. And so it, it risks other people's lives. You remember that soldier in verses 10 to 13 who sees Absalom caught in the tree, but he, he, he's afraid to kill him because he, he doesn't know what David will do. See, they're compromised by this love. He thinks it's more than my life's worth. It's certainly more than my job's worth. And then there's this curious business with the messengers. You know, this one guy, Ahimaaz, he's very keen to take the news. And Joab says, look, don't go. I'm just telling you, this isn't the time to take the news. It's not worth the risk. You don't know what David's going to do when, to the bearer of bad news. And in this really, I think, shameful moment, Joab calls this foreign guy over. He's from Cush, which is an area to the south of Israel. And he says, hey, you, you can go and tell him the news. 
evidently thinking that this foreigner is more expendable than Ahimaaz. But Ahimaaz takes it upon himself to go anyway, and he's fast, and he knows a quick route, and he runs. And it's interesting when he says he's running like Ahimaaz. I don't know what his running was like, that it was so obvious. You know, he's, he's running along, and he gets there first. And there's David, and he's waiting anxiously to, 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 for the news about, really, he's only interested in his son, who he loves. You notice that? But he doesn't tell him the full story. Verse 29, Ahimaaz tells him sort of half the truth. Now, the scholars uh, are divided on whether he is deliberately fudging and, and lying here or he just doesn't know and he's naive. But then the Cushite runs up and he does know. And when he finally catches his breath, David just has this one burning question. Is the young man Absalom safe? The young man. Is the young man Absalom safe? And the man replies, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up to harm you be like that young man. He doesn't realize what he's saying. And at that moment, David's world caves in. You notice that? He is physically shaken, verse 33. He is brokenhearted. He never recovered from this. He stumbles away weeping. Grown man, he can't control his tears. And verse 33 is one of the most moving verses in the entire Bible. Oh, my son, Absalom. My son, my son, Absalom. If only I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. How poignant this is. How deep the father's love for Absalom. Surely any parent can sympathize. No matter what your kids do, they are still your kids. And surely David is right to feel this way, isn't he, as a father? Isn't it right to show compassion and kindness to those who have failed? Isn't it right to seek their restoration, not just their destruction? How will the world be put to rights if we only have strict cold justice. You know, there's a tension here that is often pointed out in broad brush strokes about the political spectrum. Those on the, on the right side of the political spectrum tend to favor cold justice, doing the right thing in society. And those to the left often tend to favor compassion and restoration. And both of them have a point. But the Bible doesn't favor one side or the other. It has a third way. How will the world be put to rights if we only have strict cold justice? What about love, healing, forgiveness, grace? Isn't David actually reflecting something of God's character here? Remember how much he had sinned and how God had been gracious to him? He knew it. But there is a tension here. And I hope you can see that by now. There's a very real tension between justice and love. And Joab points it out. Ver chapter 19, have a look down there at verse 5. Joab goes to the house of the king and he speaks very boldly to the king, who he's known for many years. Today you have humiliated all your men who have just saved your life and the lives of your sons and daughters and the lives of your wives and concubines. You love those who hate you and hate those who love you. 
You have made it clear today that the commanders and the men mean nothing to you. I see that you would be pleased if Absalom were alive today and all of us were dead. Now go out and encourage your men. This guy is fuming. You're crazy. What message are you sending out to these men who've risked their lives for you? So David, through his anguish, hears him and he goes out and takes his place at the gate again and he, he, he does his job. He does his job as the king and he holds it together. But we are still left with this tension. Uh, who was right here? Who was right? Joab or David? Joab with his emphasis on what was the right thing to do. David with his emphasis on the love for the beloved son. How will the tension be resolved? Now, justice demanded one thing. Love demanded another. And remarkably, there is an answer in the Bible, but it's not here. But there is a hint of it. Just look at chapter 18, verse 33. Chapter 18, verse 33, that verse again. Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son, if only I had died instead of you. If only I had died instead of you. Now the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is a story of justice and love, but it is a story where one has died instead of you. He too was a prince, a royal son, the eternal son of God who came to the world and became one of us for our sakes. He too was hung on a tree. The Bible talks about the cross as a tree, recalling the words of Deuteronomy. Cursed is one who is hung on a tree. Jesus Christ was cursed by virtue of being crucified in the eyes of those who knew their Bible. Jesus was cursed. He was killed outside the city walls and buried in a borrowed tomb. He too had a stone put over him. Jesus Christ died a death rather like Absalom. He was pierced with a spear in the side by a soldier. And so as we see this story of Absalom, we can't help but think as Christians of the greater son of David who came for our sakes and how in this mysterious and extraordinary way God managed through Jesus to resolve the tension between justice and love. There's a great old hymn that says, the cross is where love and mercy meet. Because God was able to be just and to punish sin in the perfect one who had done no wrong, who took our place as a substitute so that we might go free. And that God would be able to lavish his love on you as on a beloved son and daughter because Jesus was first of all hated and rejected and crushed. Would that I could take your place, David said. And God replied, I will. I will take your place through your own great son. So God now is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So if you have known that love of God, Christian friend here, if you've known that love of God, what should you do with your sin today? 
Remember that Psalm 51 where David confesses, my sin is always before me. Is your sin before you now? I don't know what it is. You know in your heart. Is there something you need to deal with and repent of and stop its corrupting influence? What should you do in light of the love that God has for you shown in Christ Jesus? Is bring it to the cross now and lay it aside. That's not you anymore. And if you here are a person who is not yet a Christian, you're not yet a follower of Jesus Christ, you couldn't really say he's your saviour and Lord. You're still trying to do it on your own. Can you see how futile that is? What are you waiting for? Have you heard God's gracious call as he calls to you like a lost son or daughter and invites you to come and accept the love of Jesus Christ? Corruption of sin, consequences of justice, but the cry of love. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, loving Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus and in the power of the Holy Spirit. We thank you even for the privilege of gathering together freely today, of singing, of reading, of praying, of thinking about a Redeemer Church plant, all these good things that you've given us to do already today. Thank you for your word, which is so honest and in which we see ourselves if we're honest too. And we ask, Father, that you would do something in our hearts now by the power of your spirit to cause us to put away all our uncleanness and our unrighteousness and to forsake that and to love you only. And Father, for those here who are just standing on the brink of accepting your grace and mercy, please help them by your spirit to accept your love now. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.